Exact Nature's all-natural CBD-based products are specially formulated to help you lighten the load in recovery, be it with addictive cravings, depression and anxiety, or improving sleep. Founded and run by a father-son team, both in recovery, this issue is personal for them. Learn more at exactnature.com, and as a listener of the Sobriety Diaries, use the code TSD20 to receive a 20% discount at purchase. Again, TSD20 at exactnature.com. How should I refer to you? Uh, Rex. Just Rex, okay. I didn't know. No, you can use my last name. I I, I recover out loud as well. Cool. Um, Rex Shades Eagle. Nice. However, you need to express yourself is cool. Nothing's really off limits. Whatever you want to share and is crucial to tell your story, we're here for it. So, I will do a separate sort of intro after. So we'll kind of just jump into things here when you're ready. I like the evolution of your studio area. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I watched uh, Shame and Trauma with my six-year-old self. Yes. That was a great episode, by the way. Studios evolved a little bit. Some things stay, some things go, some things change a little bit. So yeah. Is that real brick or faux brick? It's faux brick. sober day friends welcome to the sobriety diaries my name is nate i am a grateful recovering alcoholic seven years from my last drink the sobriety diaries is a video podcast where we share powerful stories of recovery told by those who lived them Check us out at thesobrietydiaries.com for all things podcast related. And for all our video interviews, head over to youtube.com slash Nate Kelly. Also, please share this podcast with just one person in your life who may still be struggling. You just never know what they may need to hear today. Recovery is possible. Good morning, friends. I am here with Rex Shades Eagle, my new friend. How are you today? Happy Saturday. I am absolutely wonderful. I always tell people I'm better than most, but not as good as some. That's that's fair. I like that statement. Yeah. <laughs> it can be accurate in any in any circumstance, right? Absolutely. Where I was nine years ago to where I am today, like I could have never imagined my life being anywhere as close to as wonderful as it is today. My mornings are very busy. Um, I get up about five thirty, uh, do a yoga routine. Um, I do a sun salutation with the three warrior poses and it just kind of warms me up. Um, I have back issues, so it stretches my back out, gets my legs stretched out so that I can go hit that bike. Yeah, uh, I love that. This is actually a great place to start. We we were talking a bit about some other things in your morning routine and how your life has evolved in sobriety. Bike riding is one of them. But what other things do you sort of use in your daily routine uh, um, that are different from a decade ago? So I first got sober in 2006. I'm predominantly a heroin addict, but uh, my drug, my, my drug, I'm a heroin addict whose drug of choice is more. Like, I, I don't care. Like, I would be in the bathroom shooting up meth, bitching about how I hated meth. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and so, uh, but I identify also as an alcoholic because probably 99% of my relapses throughout the years of in and out of incarceration and going from, you know, just heroin to like just drinking or this or that. But all of my relapses always started because I had this mentality like, I'm cool. I can just drink. Yeah. You know, it's, it's cool if I just drink. I'll be all right. Um, 
I've always been curious, Rex, do, do you find that relapsing with alcohol is partly because of accessibility? And Absolutely. it's just, yeah. 100%. I mean, <clears throat> it is ridiculous. Uh, I have a really good friend of mine um, from the program. When he first came to this country, he was amazed. He couldn't believe, like he was disgusted at how much sex and alcohol is just saturated everywhere you look billboards driving down the roads in restaurants on bus stops i mean it's just it is disgusting really it is it is it's it's absolutely disgusting when i got sober uh the first time i really i really dove in um and i didn't dive in like by choice i woke up on my 32nd birthday in 2006 and i was um on the ankle monitor uh, I was on house arrest because I had just got out of prison like a month before on November 1st, two months before. My birthday is in January, January 16th. I wake up and for my birthday, my roommate who was 21 and her 19-year-old boyfriend and my 21-year-old girlfriend decided to throw me a surprise party. And the party was popular. I think I was one of maybe three or four people who was old enough to buy alcohol out of a party of like 80 people. And I think I was only at like maybe one of 10 or 15 who was old enough to buy cigarettes at the time. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I woke up and, you know, in AA, we call this a moment of clarity. Right. And I woke up and I'm laying next to my girlfriend and this other girl who fortunately turned out to be over 18. I was really scared because I didn't remember the night. I had, like I drank to oblivion. And uh, I walked to my parole office, which was nine blocks away. <laughs> and uh, I told my parole officer, I said, hey, man, I need to get sober. I need to get clean. He didn't even know I was using. I was going to the library and I was using Google Word documents to copy and paste hospital letterheads from this hospital in Denver because this gave me an excuse to go to Denver. And I had my parole officer and my job convinced that I had a malignant tumor sitting in my esophagus and that it was causing me to, every time I ate, it would cause me to throw up. I couldn't hold food down. So this explained why I was losing so much weight. Wow. The parole officer two and a half months in literally thinks that I'm dying of cancer. And I'm like, no, nah, I just been shooting dope and I'm really good at fucking the system. Holy shit. And he was like, That's yeah. Levels that we go to, right? They talk about the amends that came with all of that. Wow. Um, at the time, though, I was living in Boulder, which is only like a 30-minute, 40-minute bus ride to Denver. So I had just got back to Denver, and I was just about to get well, and the doorbell rings. So I go to answer the doorbell, boom, it's parole officers. My parole officer shows up like 30 minutes into the search when they're calling to figure out how, which jail I'm going to, right? And he shows up, and he's like, no, 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 no. He's like, I've already talked to the supervisor. He's like, I've got to handle it. They go outside and talk. The one parole officer comes back in, uncuffs me, and he was like, man, you just got touched by an angel, bro. <laughs> he leaves, and my parole officer says, it's 6 o'clock right now. He was like, I'm giving you two hours, because I actually lived in Longmont, which is right outside of Boulder. Yeah. He said, I'm giving you two hours to get to Boulder to get to the ARC, which is was the Addiction Recovery Center, which was the detox. He was like, and self-admit. He was like, if you leave without my permission, he sh he's like, all of this. And they had all, they had like two bags full of stuff sure. plus alcohol. Right. And uh, like paraphernalia, bonds, pipes, stuff like that. He's like, all of that is going into an evidence bag and getting locked in my filing cabinet. He was like, you fuck up. That's going to the DA. He's like, you owe me eight months. He was like, you better figure it out. 
went to detox, man. I was so sick. I was in a like dope sick withdrawal blackout for like three days. And I come out of it and I got these business cards that said, Raymond, call me anytime with smiley faces and like <laughs> happy face uh, emojis on it. I'm like, yeah. oh my God, I met a new dope dealer, right? So I threw him away. This guy turned out to be worked for, he owned a cleaning company that managed, that cleaned all of the mental health buildings after hours at night. And he would come and just be on site supervisor for his cleaning crew. And so to pass the time, he was a recovering alcoholic. He'd just come to the detox and talk to the people who couldn't sleep. And apparently for the, like the first three days, I had been talking to him a lot, told him a whole life story, like stuff that like when it came time for my fist step, he was like, yeah, you told me that. When you were. I'm like, what? What? Don't remember like, that. Stuff, yeah, like, I don't remember that at all. I'm like, how many other people have I told this to? <laughs> but uh, I went through the steps quickly. He, he got sober in 1979. Um, wow. This was 2006. His sponsor had gotten sober in 1963 and was good friends with Bill and like Don Pritz and like Mickey Musset, like all of these nice. like really, yeah, like, you know, like AA legends. Founding right? fathers. Yes, for real, right? Yeah. And um, so I worked the steps really fast. Two weeks, he, he, he gave me a notebook and we did the third step prayer in the parking lot of the treatment center. And he was like, here you go, man. You got two weeks to get it done. And this is why there's I, like, something to be said about doing the steps quickly. My sponsor absolutely. was hardcore committed to the fact that we were not going to sit on shit. And we went through the steps one after the next back to back. I had some time to, you know, get my thoughts down for my fourth step, but it wasn't like we sat on shit for months at a time. It was like, let's go. Are we going to do this thing? Yes. All right. Well then let's do it. Absolutely. And, uh, the first thing that Raymond did when I was coherent enough to actually sit down and like my vision could read, he gave me my first big book and he said, there's two things I want you to read. He said, I want you to read the first eight or the first 16 pages, which is Bill's story. Right. He said in the first eight, I want you to highlight any of the similarities. He's like in the second eight, he's like, I want you to highlight that anything that Bill did that you're not willing to do. He said, and then I want you to go and read Dr. Bob's nightmare. Same thing. So I said, okay, whatever, you know, fucking AA now has got, comes with homework, right? Like, so, but I do, and I read, and I read them, and I'm like, holy shit, like, man, like, you know, the language was archaic, and, right, the, right. and I wasn't that kind of alcoholic, but I was that kind of junkie, you know what I mean? Like, where I literally remember getting out of prison and having my exit check and hitting the bus station and cashing it, and next thing I know, I'm at my homeboy's house getting high. Like with a needle in my arm, and I'm like, dude, like, like pounding on the bar. How the fuck did I get here? Yeah. And uh, so by the time I got to my fourth step, I was I'd already read the book almost all the way through, and um, I got out. I did my fifth step, sixth and seventh right away. I already had most of my amends list, so I had enough at least to get started. After like my second or third amends, we got he, we really focused on the tenth and eleventh step, and for me. That's my morning routine. That's my morning and my evening routine. Like I literally, I get up and what is my goal today? You know, uh, what is my goal for this week? What can I do this week? What can I do today to get this happening? You know, and then uh, most of the time I follow through. Yeah, <laughs> that's honesty. And, uh, I love that. And I don't beat myself up when I don't. When I when I come on a podcast, I like to know who I'm talking to. So like when I was scrolling through your back episodes. I was like, I saw you one, uh, the shame and trauma with my six-year-old self. 
And then I saw my story. I was like, oh, it's your story. I was like, okay, yeah. cool. So this is what I, I want to get to know this guy. Yeah. And uh, you had quoted someone else for saying it. I'm, I'm familiar with Gabra Mate saying it, that there's big T and little T trauma. Yeah. Uh, just like there's big E and little E ego. Yes. You know, like if you're like, you know, big dick energy, oh, look at me, what's up? Exactly. I'm a alpha male, blah, blah, blah. Or that's big E ego. Yep. And then there's like, man, look, see that house? I built that house. Or like, that's my kid that hit that home run. You know what I mean? Or like, I did the work to get me where I am today. You know, I could like, this is one of the things my early, my first sponsor used to say, he's like, God doesn't clean windows. So, and what he meant by that was that God will take care of the whole house. God will take care of everything in our lives. All we got to do is clean the windows, the bare minimum, just make sure that our eyes are open and that our vision is clear on what we want to do. And like, I learned that 16 years ago when I first got sober and I never forgot it. I love uh, that. I've never heard that before. That and uh, he told me and it's uh, and he got it from a sign that was in the old AA clubhouse in Boulder. But it says, when we don't feel close to God, guess who moved? When I first got sober, I wasn't a believer in God at all. Like I had created God in my image, like <laughs> where uh, judgmental, harsh, punishing, uh, fear driven, you know, and yeah. When I was in that detox, waiting to go to treatment, um, Raymond had gone behind my back to my parole officer and was like, "Hey, <clears throat> we're having a sober Super Bowl party. It would be, do it would do a lot for Rex if he could be able to go and see that there's people can have fun and party and have a good time and not get fucked up." So my parole officer was all on board. He was he was a beautiful man that for the first five years of my sobriety, I would call him on my sobriety birthday and I would thank him. Because he believed in me. He was the first person in my life to ever believe in me. To ever be like, you know what? You're worth a shot. One of the biggest hurdles in starting a podcast can be the overwhelming thought of all of the technology. Let me tell you, don't let it stop you especially in the beautiful online recovery space, we could really save lives. So if you have a message that you want to share and a story that you want to tell, the Podcast Host Academy can help you get there. Inside the Podcast Host Academy, you'll find courses on everything from equipment, software and editing, to presentation skills and vocal warm-ups. Click the link in today's show notes for an additional 15% off your subscription to the Podcast Host Academy and Alitu.com. That is Alitu, A-L-I-T-U.com. My friends in, in AA who cared about me and loved me started calling me on my shit. I didn't realize how sick I was in five years. Like I was fucking sick. Into Probably five years of sobriety, you mean? Yeah, yeah. I was sick. Um, I had not worked an honest set of steps probably in two years. Um, and I, then I stopped calling my sponsor and I stopped returning sponsees calls. And then one of my sponsees relapsed and killed himself. I went back and I, I, and I relapsed, uh, at six years. Damn. It went on. I, I ended up, I didn't want to go to jail. <laughs> I didn't want to like break any laws. I just wanted to get high. So I started pawning off my stuff. Well, it turns out this mountain bike that I had, I bought it from a thief um, and it was stolen jail. And uh, Jesus. 
So over the next year and a half, I was in and out of jail. In July of 2013, I got out and I was clean. I had kind of been working with this therapist. I got, I was come from a very traumatic, sexually and abusive, sexually and physically abusive childhood. My stepmother uh, used to beat me and she liked to sodomize me with like kitchen utensils and other things. So when I was 12 years old, I fought back and I got kicked out for fighting back. I immediately turned to heroin. Uh, when I was 13 years old, I was living in South Philly uh, at a $15 a night roach motel. Um, a transvestite prostitute and one of their Johns kicked in my door. And all I know is I, that was on a Friday. I woke up on Sunday in the hospital with my jaw wired shut, 14 stitches in my ass, uh, broken ribs. Uh, the theory is that they raped me and beat me and left me for dead. And my best friend found me because he had a key to the room. And uh, so I just went full bore. When I got sober the first time, I talked about that stuff, but I didn't process any of it. And sure. I thought by revealing it to the world, because I thought, you know, like you talked in your in your podcast about yourself about the shame of like your of like hiding your sexuality and stuff like that. Like, yeah. I felt ashamed because I didn't think that I was gay, but I like there was times when I didn't like I I, I got aroused when I was being molested yeah. or, you know, at the yeah. idea of it, or like, you know, like there was times when I put myself in shady situations and did things that I probably wasn't really comfortable with. Shame is a fake feeling for things that are done to us. Like there it's, it's like, I'm not that it's fake. I'm saying like, it's not like it's nothing from anything that we've done. That's what guilt is. Guilt is when we feel like, Oh man, I should have done that. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I should have paid him that 20 yes. bucks at it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Shame is like, Oh my God, this guy is shaming me because of my sexuality or because I was kicked out of my house and homeless, you know, and like the way the kids made me feel in school because I was the, literally the first homeless person in my hometown since the depression. And, uh, yeah, it's like things we can't it. control. So there's yes. a shame associated with it. I didn't let go of that. I thought that I had because I was like, oh, you know, I was molested and I was raped and I'm HIV positive and all of these things, you know what I mean? And like, because I'm talking about them, I felt that they didn't have power over me anymore. Well, that wasn't the truth at all, like at all. Like, uh, and I found that out when I relapsed this time, this last time, it didn't work anymore. See, since I was 12 years old, me and my longest running relationship ever, I call heroin my mistress. She was my mistress for 27 years. Mm. And we had this agreement. She said, I'll take away the pain. I'll, I'll shut up the voices. I'll numb everything. I'll silence everything in return for everything. You give me everything and I'll give you this solace. So now fast forward 2013, I'm getting high and the voices aren't gone. The numb's not there. Now I just feel like this piece of shit who just threw away the clean time that he had for nothing. So she's, over it, She's not upholding her side of the, the bargain exactly. anymore. <laughs> she betrayed me. Yeah. The one person, the one entity thing in my life, my God. After 27 years, because I was like a Harry Krishna devotee, you know what I mean? Like my life was spent in the pursuit of doing heroin. Yeah. So I was like, man, I can't, I can't do this. I like to say that in every possible sense and definition of the word, I was tired. I was almost 40 years old. I knew I was, I was on probation with a suspended prison sentence. And I was in violation of my probation. I hadn't reported in months. 
and uh i planned my i started planning my own suicide and uh i was hiking up in the hills and in Boulder and I was doing just enough dope to stay well, but not be high. Cause I wanted to like really be conscious and clear about the things I was thinking about because I had always felt my whole life that I was meant to see the credits like that. I wasn't meant to like leave early before, you know, the whatever's going to be after the credits, like they do at Marvel. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I wanted to be there for the whole thing, but I just didn't have any fight anymore. I listened to Tim's podcast with you, Tim Logden. And, yeah. uh, he talks about how he had lost hope. Hope is the one thing I never lost. And I didn't realize this at the time, but my hope changed from, I hope I can get through this to, I hope I can end this. And I hope that when I get to wherever it is that I'm going, that the intent behind it will be understood. So I went to my dealer's house. who was also like 20 year, 20 plus year friend of mine. Uh, I, I knew he would let me stay at his house because I was homeless if it, if it snowed. We watched the movie and they were getting ready to watch the sequel. And I was like, hey, I've seen this. Can I take a bath? And he's like, yeah, man, go ahead. So I went upstairs, lit some candles, ran a bath, set up my playlist because I made a playlist, man. <laughs> and uh, wow. I, uh, I, did, I, I did the dope and I sat in the tub and I, and I just remember the last thing right before I did it is I hit play on my phone and uh, – I just remember fading out to listen to heroin by the Velvet Underground. Next thing I know, I'm laying on the floor looking up at the ceiling and there's people above me and they're freaking out, crying and screaming. And I'm like, what the fuck? Took me a few minutes. Um, They revived me. They found me. Um, Apparently, I had been up there in the tub for 15, 20 minutes and I was only up there for maybe five or six minutes before I got in the tub. But something had changed. You know, you hear stories about people who go under anesthesia and they wake up and they're no longer addicted to alcohol or they're no longer addicted to painkillers. And uh, so it's like, you know, I equate it to, you know, like back in the day uh, before smart everything, when you had to call IT and they're like, well, did you unplug it? (laughs) Yeah. And like, oh, you know, like they tell you still today, did you unplug your modem? You know, and uh, I kind of feel like I needed that reset. So I went the next morning and I hitchhiked to Fort Collins from Boulder, turned myself into probation. When I got to the jail, I went from AA, big book focused mentality to, okay, there's two things that Bill talks about in the big book that have rung and stuck with me since I first heard them. <clears throat> the first is, in the, it's the first sentence of the first forward to the first edition. It says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. That was like, okay, how did they recover? That goes on to say, you know, how that's the purpose of this book is to show you how we did it. But then later on in the book, Bill says, we came to realize that our drinking was but a symptom of our disease. Okay, so put those two together. We figured out that drinking was just a symptom of what's going on, and now we're recovered. So I got into this program at Boulder County Jail that was a therapeutic community, kind of like a rehab in jail. And uh, it was very small. There was only like maybe like 30 guys in there. Um, and when I got in there, there's a bunch of dudes that I had done time with that I respected. These are old convicts who like been junkies since like the 70s. You know what I mean? And like, but they followed the three rules. That's it's kind of like the junkie code. You don't yeah. victimize women, children, or elderly. Everything else is on the fucking table. Yeah. 
And I respect that about these guys. So now I'm sitting in these classrooms in Boulder County Jail and these guys are crying because their babysitter diddled them or their parents didn't love them. Or, and I'm like, holy fuck, these guys are telling my story and they're crying. They're crying. Like in my head, I'm like, what the fuck? I'm allowed to cry? Like, I'm allowed to do that? And This is where the, the processing comes in, whereas before yes. you had just laid it out there, now we're, we're getting into the work and processing right. things. Yes. And uh, I remember watching Brene Brown talk about vulnerability. And love her. Like, love this woman. I love her. I just want to give her yeah, a hug. Love thank her. her. I remember my therapist brought in this VHS tape and she put it in the VCR and we watched this swarmy 70s porn star looking dude talking (laughs) about you're never going to change your life until you change how you tell your story. That really struck with me. So I'm like, okay, so if, if vulnerability is my greatest strength and I can change my life by telling my story, I started to focus on how I told my story to myself and the victim mentality that I had. What it did is it led me to a place of forgiveness, true forgiveness, and not forgiveness in the sense like, oh, you're good, you know, no harm, no foul. There was harm and there was a foul, but I am no longer going to lose another second fucking sleep over the things that you did to me. Mm. So I'm taking my power back. So that is forgiveness to me. I stay on top of it because I like to tell newcomers, like, <clears throat> the moment you get clean is the day you're addiction whatever it is gets locked up and anybody who's ever been in jail or known anybody who's ever been gone to prison when they come out they usually look good they're in there working out lifting weights trying to take care of their health they're trying to compensate for all the fucked up shit that they've done with needles and bottles throughout their life and so i tell i tell people your addiction's in prison right now working out get bigger get stronger And it's waiting for you to give them their parole date. And that's the date that you fuck up. And the most common thing I hear, and I I told you it was the thing for me, is why do you think you went back out? Because I stopped going to meetings. I stopped talking about my recovery. I stopped talking about and having that connection because that's the opposite of addiction, right? We all know that. It's connection. So when we stop connecting... We start relapsing. Relapse takes place long before you ever drink or drug. Long before. Absolutely. The drinking and the drugging is the culmination of the decisions that you have made to bring you to this point. Because I've had people that are like, why did you wait this long to write your book? Why did you wait this long to start your podcast? I published my book in January. I started my podcast in February. My book is called No Love, A Memoir. And my podcast is called No Love, The Memoir Continues. Like K-N-O-W Love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, We'll link, we'll link everything for Rex in today's show notes, but continue, please. Oh, yeah. Last time I did it for six years and I went out. I wanted to really, like my goal was, is I wanted to live one complete life cycle without doing heroin. I made it. And now yeah. as you and I sit here and talk, it's the 22nd of October. Um, I took my own life on October 27th, 2013. Uh at about 11 o'clock at night. So when midnight rolled around, I had not done any drugs or used since October 28th, 2013. So I'm like six days from my nine years. Wow. And uh, I thank you. I know we don't do fronts and stuff like that, but at this that's, point, I'm pretty confident. That's powerful. And nine days before, and it's funny because I'm, I'm big into the number nine. 
I love the number nine. And uh, so nine days before my nine years, I started doing 90 and 90, which is going to lead me to my 40 end on my 49th birthday in January. Oh, so that's amazing. Last, last time I went out, cause I stopped going to meetings. Right. So I hear about more people going out at the, I call them the nickels, five, 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. We, we get complacent, yep. you know, congratulations on, uh, on, on your sobriety as well. I know you've got some years under your belt. Yeah. Um, I just crossed the, uh, the seven year mark and I, a hundred percent agree with that. At five years, man, I was itching like no other. So that was like a, a point in my recovery when I had to really look in the mirror and, and see what am I doing that's working? Where can I supplement my recovery? You know, I can't only cling to the rooms of a 12-step program. So that is when I started venturing out into like this digital side of things and the online recovery community and started researching podcasts and educating myself and teaching myself how to produce and and do all of the, these other things because I needed something else. And it was pretty much right at that five-year mark. June comes around. June's Men's Mental Health Awareness Month. Yeah. And uh, so I start seeing all these TikToks with, with men in recovery and who aren't even necessarily in recovery, who are like normal drinkers, but they're like men that I respect. And uh, and they're all talking about suicide and men's mental health. And I'm like starting to realize like, man, like this is so much deeper and this is like alcoholism, you know, there, it's, it's so prevalent in our community. Uh, so I, I started doing statistics or like looking at statistics and studies about like men's mental health. And I started coming across all these suicide statistics, right? So it is unbelievable the amount of people that are taking their own lives every day. I mean, it is like on average 130 people a day. And that's in, crazy. In 2020, 45,000 plus people decided to take their own lives. 80% of those people, men. I feel like there's something that I can help do about this. So about the halfway through June, I started reaching out to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And uh, I started writing to my local congressman and senators uh, here in Colorado um, on the national and the state level. Colorado is one of the hardest hit states uh, by uh, suicide. And in July, we had legislation passed that um, there's no longer a 1-800 suicide number. Now it's you just dial 988. That's amazing. Yeah, I saw that yeah. on um, it was you know national news. That's amazing. Yeah, and if you don't want to if you don't want to talk, you can text the word talk to 741741. Um, you know, we can link that or whatever. For sure. Um, but uh, I started realizing, I'm like, man, like I was 39 years old when I was so destitute that I felt that taking my own life was the right answer. I know how these men feel. And here's, you know, and it's not just men. Women try like 1.75% times more than men, but men succeed almost four times more than women. The shame that we feel just for being who the fuck we are, like that shit's got to end. Like I, you know, and so, so well said. And the strength that it takes to put your guard down and want to work on those things, that takes a, a, a strong ass man to do that as opposed to keep the wall up, forget about it, push it aside. 
traditional therapy may not be your thing. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard, have you heard of in the rooms? ITR no. it's uh it's an online server community. They host everything from aid overeater Dakota to uh, ACA. It's called in the rooms. It's really cool. Oh, um, cool. checking it but out. I found this community on there of men, uh, all races, all sexual identities, all ages, and it's called spiritual gangsters. And it's no program. It's just men trying to help men be authentic and genuine with each other. June 25th of next year, I will be departing. Uh, I want to leave from the Space Needle just because I think it's cool. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'll be departing Seattle, Washington um, on my way to San Francisco. And then from San Francisco, I will be going across the Sierra Nevadas and the Rockies to Denver. Um, from Denver to Washington, D.C. and from Washington, D.C. to Miami, Florida. It's a 5,800-plus mile. Holy fuck. Um, it's to raise money and awareness for suicide prevention and outreach. Um, we're starting, we've started a hashtag movement, hashtag save one thirty. Um, to, <sighs> sorry, I'm gonna cry. Oh, it's uh, it's it big, hurts. Me. Big stuff. I've been there. I know. I know what it feels like to know in your heart that there is no other answer that the world would be a better place without you. That all of the drama, all of the problems, everything associated with your life would just go away if I wasn't here. And that's fucking bullshit in and of itself. Because one, the world is absolutely a better place with me and everyone else who's in it here. And the reality is, is that nobody's alone. We all hurt. All of our trauma whether it's big T, little T, it all hurts the same. It's all defined who we are, but it doesn't have to define who we are anymore. You know, a good friend of mine says that he doesn't believe that we can't change the past because every day that we complete, we've created a new past. So now that I'm nine years into my journey, I am literally, even on a cellular level, a completely different person than I was set nine years ago when I felt that I needed to die to make everything better. The world is a much better place with you in it. You can contact me through any of my social media. I ask that you text first just because my ringer's never on. And I don't <laughs> want you to feel like I'm ignoring you. Yeah. But I will always return or answer a call at some point. Um, you know, since I started this campaign, I've had at least five or six men and a couple of women reach out to me and been like, Hey man, like I needed to hear what you had to say today because I was almost at that point, you know. And uh, if I could bring that number from one thirty to one twenty nine, then I've succeeded. Wow, Rex, I needed to hear what you had to say today, and you say it with such compassion and power behind it. I know that we will be able to help countless people today. We will link everything that you mentioned in the show notes. The passion that you have and, and the experience can help so many people. And I would love for you to sort of be a part of, of the Sobriety Diaries family and, and continue with future projects. Thank you so much for listening today, friends. Hopefully you heard something that resonates with you. And if we help just one person, our job is done. 
Make sure you check today's show notes for all the information discussed in the episode and how to connect with our guest. And as always, check us out at thesobrietydiaries.com, youtube.com slash Nate Kelly, and on Instagram at the Sobriety Diaries Pod. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show, friends. It truly helps other people to find the show. And in turn, we can help more people. Until next Wednesday, try your best not to drink and be good to yourselves. Bye, everyone. <laughs>